let us now read from our confession, from what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 27. That's page 539 of your Book of Praise. The concentration this morning will especially be on question and answer 74. Let's also read the other two questions and answer. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 56. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, once again we have a sermon about baptism, and now particularly about infant baptism. Especially in this day and age, this is a timely and somewhat pressing doctrine. For all around us we find churches that strongly believe that infant baptism is wrong. That is not only the case with Baptist churches, but also with Pentecostal churches and various evangelical churches. Most of these churches are full of Bible-believing Christians. They take their Bible seriously. It is very important to them to be faithful to Scripture. And so as I prepare for this sermon, this made me think. What makes them so convinced that they are right about this? How do they come to their position? And why is it that we sometimes lose young people to these kinds of churches? What is the attraction? And so what I did last week was to read up more 
about this from their perspective, and I did a lot of reading. I also listened to some well-known modern-day theologians, such as John McAllister and many others. I really wanted to understand it from their perspective. What are they seeing that we are not seeing? I thought to myself, I've been brought up in the Reformed faith, and maybe I've been blinded to their way of thinking because of my upbringing and because of my training as a Reformed minister. And so I wanted to open up my mind to a different point of view. Of course, I also read and listened to some eminent and well-known Reformed theologians. And I read my Bible. Not necessarily in that order. The Bible is the ultimate authority on everything. The problem is, for us, not for God, that the Bible doesn't state specifically that children must be baptized. Nowhere in the Bible do you find the command that children have to be baptized. But you do not find in the Bible either that children are not allowed to be baptized. And therefore, we have to carefully read the Bible and infer from what the Bible has to say about this what the truth is about infant baptism. That's also what we do with other doctrines, isn't it? The Trinity, for example. Nowhere in the Bible is the word Trinity mentioned. Jehovah's Witnesses will make a big deal of that. And yet we can clearly infer from the Bible that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is clearly shown to be God. And therefore we speak about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. When we do so, we do so biblically. Careful reading of the Bible and faithful submission to God's word does not allow you to come to a different conclusion. With infant, Bible, with infant baptism, we also have to look carefully at what the Bible says. In so doing, and for that I'm most thankful, I was reconfirmed in my Reformed faith. I once again stood in awe of God's mercy and compassion and wisdom in the way that he deals with us individually and corporately through the generations. I once again discovered that you cannot come to any different conclusion than that the baptism of children is most definitely required and expected. However, I must say that after looking at this particular doctrine of fresh, what I came away with was a greater understanding of the Baptist point of view. I also gained a deeper respect for those who hold that position. For that reason, I find it all the more disconcerting that those who hold to the baptism of believers only miss out on the great blessings that God bestows on his covenant children. I find it very sad. For we are indeed blessed. And so are those parents who just had their baby baptized. Why are they blessed? 
Well, let's consider that as I preach to you about the blessings of infant baptism. The theme is as follows. Baptism signifies that believers and their children are set apart as God's covenant people. And then we will see, first of all, what that means for us, and in the second place, what that means for our children. The main argument against the baptism of infants is that when baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, it is always done in connection with faith. Mark 16, verse 16 says that you must believe and then be baptized. Baptism follows after faith. And Baptists will go to great lengths and go to many scripture passages to show that when someone expresses his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that then baptism follows. For example, in Acts 8, we read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. This man who was already a believer in God, for he had come to Jerusalem to worship God there in the temple, this man, after Philip told him the good news about the Lord Jesus, also believed in him. And so because of his new faith in the Lord Jesus, he inquired if there was any reason for him not to be baptized. When they came upon some water, they stopped the chariot in which they were riding, and immediately he was baptized. There are many other stories about those who are baptized after they believe. Think about Lydia, who was also a worshiper in God, of God and whose heart was opened to respond to Paul's message of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 16, verse 15, that she then was baptized along with the members of her household. Oikos in Greek, which means household with children. And in Acts 16, we also read about the Philippian jailer who came to faith after Paul preached the gospel to him. It says in verse 33 that after that, he and all his family were baptized. And so there are other examples. The point is well taken. Those who hold to the baptism of believers only are absolutely right on that point. First, you must believe, then you are baptized. But that is not the point of contention we have with them. For we also believe that you must be baptized because of your faith. That is why in the back of the book of praise, we also have the form for the baptism of adults. We would not baptize any adult if he or she was not a believer. Of course not. And so what is the problem? Well, so far there is none. We all agree. However, we should take note of the fact that in our midst, the baptism of adults is a rare event. In my 24 years of ministry, I remember having done it only once. It is rare for us to have converts becoming a member of the church. That is a cause for reflection. More about that later. Perhaps that is why some people are so attracted to evangelical churches. In those churches, it is a much more frequent event. There's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around this. 
It seems that in this way they are more in tune with the New Testament church as described in the Bible. But let's not forget that when the gospel was spread during biblical times and right after that, there was, first of all, a change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. With Christ, we have the fulfillment of all the ceremonial laws. In place of Passover came the Lord's Supper. And as you will see in a moment, in place of circumcision came baptism. And so when baptism was introduced, everyone had to be baptized, including whole households. And therefore, believers' baptism was at that time very frequent, understandably. The circumcision of adults in the Old Testament was also quite rare. For as you know, then the circumcision of babies was the norm. There were very few adult circumcisions. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. They did. For there were proselytes, those who came to the Jewish faith as adults. And to the Jewish community, and to be able to worship in the temple, you needed to be circumcised. And therefore they were circumcised. But that was an exception in the Old Testament. It was mostly only the children who were circumcised. The main argument against those who only want to baptize adults is that baptism replaces circumcision. Our form for the baptism of infants also makes that one of its strongest arguments. That is not something, of course, that the Baptists agree with. They state that circumcision was an initiation right into the ethnic community. Circumcision sets you apart from the other nation. It only makes you part of God's covenant community. For then you belong to Abraham and to his offspring, to Israel. But what is circumcision? Well, both sides of the issue will argue that circumcision is a sign of the old covenant and that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. There is no escaping that. And there is no escaping the fact either that both circumcision and baptism are connected to faith. Both of them are connected to faith. It's quite clear from what it says in Romans 3 verse 30 where it says that there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. And so for adults, faith was also necessary to be circumcised. And what does circumcision signify? It signifies more than just belonging to Abraham and his seed. Circumcision signifies impurity and the need for the shedding of blood and the removal of sin. The piece of foreskin is thrown away, signifying the sin of man that had to be done away with. With Christ, the shedding of blood is no longer necessary. He shed his blood once for all, 
And therefore, circumcision also had to be done away with. Something else had to take its place. And clearly, that is where baptism comes in. Baptism also signifies the doing away of sin. In Colossians 2, therefore, Paul calls baptism the circumcision done without hands. In order to perform the ritual of circumcision, you had to be skilled with your hands. It was a delicate operation. And therefore, with baptism, such skillful use of the hands was no longer necessary. Baptism is the circumcision without hands. The Old Testament scripture clearly teaches that infants had to be circumcised. We don't need to discuss that. Why then are there those who refuse to baptize children? Well, there are many reasons for that. At the time of the Reformation, the Anabaptists came to their position because they wanted to make a radical break with the practices in the Roman Catholic Church. For the Roman Catholics had made baptism more than it is. According to the Roman Catholic Church, it is through the water of baptism that you receive God's grace. As soon as you receive the sacrament, God's grace is poured into you. And without God's grace, you cannot be saved. That is why it is so important for a Roman Catholic parent to have their child baptized as soon as possible, for else the child would not be saved. In emergencies, even a nurse can baptize a child. In this way, baptism becomes a kind of ticket to heaven. And so you can leave whatever life you lead and even be a member of the mafia, but as long as you have baptism, and as long as throughout your life you partake of the other sacraments of the church by which you receive God's grace, you will be saved. You may have to sit in purgatory for a while, but ultimately you will be saved because of the sacraments that you received in the church. And baptism is one of the most important sacraments. In this way, the connection between faith and baptism is removed. And indeed, that is a great concern. It is understandable that the Anabaptists wanted to do nothing with that kind of thing any longer. But that is a concern for us as well, brothers and sisters. We may never think that baptism saves you. It doesn't. It is merely a sign, a picture, which represents the real thing. And you may not confuse the picture with the real thing. For example, if you were to see a picture of the Queen of England, you could say to someone, that's the Queen. You would not be lying. But no one would think that you mean that the Queen herself is actually in that picture as if she could just walk out of that picture. No, that picture only represents her. It shows us what she looks like and reminds us of what she stands for. The same thing is true of baptism. It is only a picture 
of what it represents. It is only a picture of the real thing. And the water represents the blood of Christ through which we are cleansed. And therefore, the water of baptism as such doesn't save you. No, it points to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't automatically save you. And that is why when children become of age, they have to make profession of their faith. If children do not come to that point and do not want to live as a child of God and do not want to belong to God's covenant people any longer, then it is as if they never have received baptism. Of course, the baptism itself was real and contained all the promises. But when you walk away from all that, then it is no longer real for you. If those who have been baptized no longer live in accordance with what the baptism signifies, and if they do not repent, they will be treated as unbelievers. In this day and age, there are many people who are baptized heathens. They were baptized as children, but they never really came to faith. Even though they were baptized, they will never be saved unless they repent. But there were many circumcised heathens as well. The scriptures throughout tell us about them. Numerous Israelites, God's own covenant people, rejected their God. They were all circumcised, but many, many of them were not saved. Although they were circumcised, they were treated as if they were not. Just like it says in that passage in Romans 2 we just read. That's because they didn't keep God's law. They were a law unto themselves. But that doesn't mean that God now wants to do away with circumcision. No. For to the Israelites, circumcision was connected to the promises. God commanded Abraham and his offspring to be circumcised, and with it he attached the promises, not only of earthly blessings, but also of eternal blessings. And those promises were received by the children through the parents. We come to the second point. As I said in the beginning, what a blessing it is that we may have our children baptized and that parents can bring their children to the baptismal font. What a blessing for Megan Gunning to receive the sign and the seal of the covenant. For she just received the promise of God that through the gospel she may be saved. Of course, she doesn't understand any of that yet. But her parents just made promises that they are going to bring her up in the knowledge of those wonderful promises that God makes to those who put their trust in God, who believe. She belongs to parents who already are part of the covenant. In that regard, there is no difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. The inclusion in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament is through familial solidarity. In other words, through the families. 
And the covenant is not just belonging to an ethnic community. Oh, sure, that was an important element in the Old Testament. Their circumcision made you part of the Jewish people. But the covenant we now have is new, as it says in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. It is a new covenant that is, it is based on better promises. There is now also greater inclusion, not lesser inclusion. Now families from all kinds of nations may receive those same promises as Israel did. For Abraham is the father of all believers. How exactly are you included? How does that work within the family? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 7 that even though, that even if only one parent is a believer, then their child is considered to be holy, sanctified. But it says the same thing about an unbelieving partner. It says that if one of the partners in a marriage is an unbeliever, then he or she is sanctified through the other believing partner. Isn't that interesting? How can an unbeliever be sanctified? Well, because of the Christian family to which that person belongs. For you have to understand sanctification here in the proper sense in accordance with the original meaning of the word. The meaning of sanctification is that you have been set apart, set apart from the world. And that is what happens within a marriage, even if there is an unbeliever in the marriage. Because the other partner is going to, or at least should be, try to bring the unbelieving partner as much as possible in contact with the gospel. In this way, the unbelieving partner is giving a privileged position in the midst of a sinful world. That unbelieving partner is brought into contact continually with the gospel of salvation. That is the blessing. And that is also the blessing of circumcision. We read that together. It says, what advantage does the Jew have? Is there no advantage? Yes, there is because they come into contact with God's word. We usually understand sanctification to refer to both outward, the outward and inward work of the Holy Spirit. But it can also refer exclusively to the outward working of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that sense that it is used here in this text. This is what happens to an unbelieving partner. And that is also what happens to a child. Baptism as such does not regenerate you. But it does alert you to the fact that you have been set apart, that you have been set apart, and that you are brought constantly into contact with the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. into contact with that gospel 
through the parents that God has placed on your path. And that is why families are so important. And that is why the Lord God also says that he blesses in the generations. In the New Testament, there are 12 references to people being baptized. But know that a quarter of them, so four, include also households. Those who hold to the baptism of believers only state that there were likely not any really young children in those households, and that therefore you cannot prove anything by this. They also say that this is an argument from silence, and that's true. But what a pregnant silence that is. How likely do you think that there were no children included in those households which were baptized? Highly unlikely. And not only that, nowhere do we see in the New Testament that now all of a sudden children are no longer included in the covenant community. There isn't any mention of that anywhere in the Bible. Don't you think that would have been a big deal? If there would have been a change in that regard? Don't you think Peter in his Pentecostal sermon would have said something about that? No, he says the promises to you and to your children. Baptism. Baptists will argue that not only is there no mention of infant baptism in the New Testament, but that there is no mention of infant baptism in the history of the early church either. But that is an argument we have to use against them. For they say, well, it's not mentioned until the theologian origin does it in the mid-third century. Around 250 after Christ, he wrote that infant baptism was, and now I quote, the universal custom of the church and that it is rooted and grounded in apostolic tradition. Baptists dismiss that statement of the theologian origin. They say that within the 200 years after Christ, somehow the baptism of children must have become slowly but surely the practice. The church changed things over those 200 odd years. That change came about within that time span. Brothers and sisters, do you really think that if the early church had gone from the baptism of adults to the baptism of infants, then there would have been no mention of that during the ensuing history of the early church, and that there would be no written record of any of that. All kinds of documents are found from the third century and prior about very important doctrinal issues. Think about the discussion about the Trinity, for example. That issue had been brewing for well over 100 years. Finally, in 325 AD, after the persecution had ended, the churches came together to refute the heresies that had been floating around for those many years. There are all kinds of documents dealing with those important doctrinal issues. And yet, any change about the baptism of infants, we do not find anywhere. Why not? Obviously, because there was no change. 
Children were always included in the covenant just like they were in the Old Testament. They were included through the parents. There would have been a lot of discussion if that doctrine had been changed. And it hadn't. It remained the same. It's a good thing that we did not throw out the baby with the bathwater, as the Anabaptists did during the Reformation. God blesses in the generations. He blesses little children through the parents who bring them up in the knowledge of God's promises. And that is why you also see such a strong generational representation here in this church. Great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and children and little children are all part of the covenant community. And they're all sitting in this church building right now. What a blessing. Oh, sure. It would be wonderful if we had more adult baptisms. We could do some. We could do with some of the zeal of the evangelicals and to bring God's word to whomever and wherever we can. It is good that there are also many people in this congregation who are engaged in reaching out. May that continue. May that kind of activity also increase. But let us not do that at the expense of the covenant through familial association. Let us not now become individualistic in our approach. Because that is what you find a lot in the evangelical churches. Those churches, although they want to be faithful in so many ways, are geared to the individual. And to an individual's specific needs and requirements. For that reason, in those churches, people come and go constantly. There is no strong commitment to a community as such. And that is why those churches are always in a flux as well. And that is why their children are more likely to, wake, to walk away from God and his church, for it is up to them to come to faith. No, God gives you faith through the parents and through the rest of the covenant community. And there has to be a strong bond between the members of the covenant. As covenant community, we do not walk away from each other so easily. We can only do that if we are truly convinced that someone has totally gone away from God and his ordinances. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are the household of God. However, let us be careful that we do not become too cliquish either. For that tends to be a problem with us. Because of our strong identification with families, we stick together and we make it hard for others to fit in. And therefore, without compromising the gospel of salvation in all its richness, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we are as, close, are, are as inclusive as we can be and as welcoming as we can be. Brothers and sisters, God greatly blesses us through the covenant that he establishes with us as believers and our seed. We are blessed. 
not because of who we are ourselves, but we are blessed because of God. It is his doing. And in his wisdom, he blesses in the generations. And be faithful to the promises that he makes. And be keenly aware of the demands that he makes as well. Don't take your inclusion for granted, as if you can just sit back. No, he puts you to work and give thanks to him for salvation through no merit of your own. Give thanks to him through the generations, and then the Lord will also bless you through the generations and bless us as his covenant community. Amen.